Let us pray. Lord, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. And what we are not, make us. For Christ's sake, working in and through us. Amen. We've just heard from the third chapter of John's Gospel. We're three chapters in. To summarize briefly, in chapter one, the Apostle John tells us clearly who Jesus is, and that is the divine Son of God. In chapter 2, John establishes or introduces us to some of the things that Jesus began to do, what Jesus did as the Son of God. And now here in chapter 3, he addresses for the first time some of the why questions that arise. Why did Jesus come, and why does it matter in my life? And we meet a man named Nicodemus who comes showing interest in Jesus. And we learn from the start a little bit about who Nicodemus is. He is a Pharisee. He is a member of the religious party whom Jesus on many occasions opposed and rebuked. He's not just an ordinary Pharisee. He is, as we're told, of the ruling class. He is a ruler of the Jews. We learn a little later in John's Gospel that what this means is that he sits on the Sanhedrin, which is the formal and final governing body which oversees all matters pertaining to religious life and law in Israel. In other words, he is on Israel's supreme court. That is his position in society. And this man, and it's important that we understand his stature in that light, this is the man who comes to Jesus by night, and says to him, Rabbi, which means master, a title of respect, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The thrust of Jesus' words must not be missed. If anyone were to be deemed worthy of entry into the kingdom of God looking through a first century lens, it would most certainly have been a man like Nicodemus. He would have been at the top of the list. In worldly eyes, Nicodemus lacked nothing. He had everything. 
He was well-educated. He was well-dressed, at least respectively speaking. He was esteemed not just by his peers, but by everybody. He was endowed with authority. His words, his teachings, his mind, and what proceeded out of his mouth would have been received like gold. He would have been offered the best seat anywhere and everywhere he showed up whenever he wanted. People would have deferred to him. Maybe 75 years ago, it would have been like wearing a collar in Boston. It's not like that anymore. And yet, Jesus' words make very clear that none of this counts for anything at the gates of the kingdom of God. Which leads us to the conclusion that a learned man, a rich man, a popular man, a powerful man, a successful man, a religious man, may very well make his way through the kingdoms of the world just fine. And that same man may never come to know what it means to truly set a single foot inside the kingdom of God. It has nothing to do with how much you know. It has nothing to do with how much you have. It has nothing to do with how well you're liked or how much you do or what you don't do. That's not the basis or the terms for entry. For it has everything to do with what you are looking through God's eyes, not in worldly terms, God is concerned with what are you. Now, if we were to leave that question open-ended and let anyone answer that as they saw fit, we would receive answers that run the gamut. I'm this, I'm that. There would be no sense or order. But Jesus confines the question and brings it very narrowly into two options. You are either dead or alive. Dead or alive, that's it. Those are the two options. To use the language of Jesus, a person is either born again from above by the Spirit or they're not. There is no gray area. There's no in-between state. Just as at this very moment, you are either physically alive or dead, so also, and even more so, spiritually speaking, you are either alive or dead. It's not my words. It's Jesus's words. Choice of words. Now, if you're having difficulty wrapping your mind around this, I assure you, you are not alone. 
Nicodemus was stumped at this point, and he says, how can this be? And when he asks the how question, Jesus only doubles down and reiterates the same thing. You must be born of water and the Spirit, or else there is no entry into the kingdom. I'm reminded of some words of the Apostle Paul in his first letter to the Corinthians from the second chapter. He says this about spiritual truths that are difficult to understand. Paul says, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit, capital S, who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit himself, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. He says, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Now, if this matter of being born again from above by the Spirit of God is not a spiritual matter in need of spiritual interpretation and eyes, I don't know what is. It is one of the deepest spiritual truths that we will ever encounter in our Christian life. It is the very basis and foundation and beginning of our Christian walk, rooted in spiritual truth. The word born here, the Apostle John uses eight times in the first eight verses. That's half of our reading. He is clearly wanting to stress this point of the need for a new birth, and nothing short of that. Really, what he's doing is unpacking a point which he alluded to two chapters back, which we hear at the end of every Mass in these words. To all who did receive him, Jesus that is, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, or sons of God in our translation, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Our state of need in this life, on this side of heaven, is nothing short of new birth, which is exactly why Jesus uses this illustration. This is our starting condition, naturally speaking. Someone put it in these words, The minute you are born into this world physically, you head towards death. You're like a cut rose. But the minute you are born of God from above, of the Spirit, you head in the complete opposite direction towards life. And they do go in opposite directions, two completely different ends.
All of this seems new to Nicodemus. He acts as though this is new concept, new teaching, when it's not at all. The prophets spoke of God doing new things, not refurbishing the old, but bringing about completely new things in the world, new beings, new creatures, with new hearts, with living water. Paul sums it up in the final line of our first reading. God, he says, gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Apart from the new birth in Christ, we aren't. There is nothing. But in Christ, there is everything. There are so many implications that could be drawn from this, and with more time we could focus on some of the practical matters that apply to us, such as our need, in fact, is not to be simply modified or corrected. It's not like we're just broken and we need to be straightened out. We are dead, dead in sin, in need of being called, out of the tomb to new life, just like Lazarus. We're not in need of just simply a new beginning or a fresh start in life where we take on new habits. We are in need of an entirely new being, a new nature, something that we don't naturally possess at all. That's what Jesus is encouraging us into. Or... It would be worth noting that this new birth is not brought on by us. We can't bring this about. It's entirely the work of God. Consider our physical lives, our first birth. Did we make that happen? Absolutely not. It came upon you. You had no say in the matter, and you came to be. It's the same spiritually. God comes upon you and breathes his spirit upon you, and you come to be in new life. And he uses the illustration of wind to make that point. You know neither where it comes or where it's going. You can't even see it, really, but you know it when it hits you, and it pushes you in a whole new direction. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. It comes upon you. And it begins to produce the fruits of faith and repentance. Those things that we are deeply in need of and concentrated on and we focus on in Lent. Those are the fruits of this new birth. I would leave you with a word about the season of Lent. It is so easy for this season to become a time of polishing ourselves, to become a time of simply doing some good things and hopefully displacing some bad things, a time to feel better about ourselves, 
It's easy for our disciplines to devolve in that direction when really the season of Lent needs to be entirely bound up with preparation simply to see God more clearly and to believe him more fully. That's what Lent is about. Anything that gets in the way of seeing God more clearly and believing him needs to go. Think of pruning a houseplant and all those brown leaves that cluster and clutter and stifle the growth of that plant. In Christ, you are a living being. But we have these growths that need to be pulled off, that just get in the way of our growth in Christ. That's what has to go. Not to make us worthy, not to make us prettier, but so that we may have life in abundance forever. Amen.